0: Telemachus, Friend by O. Henry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Returning from a hunting trip, I waited at the little town of Los Pinos in New Mexico for the southbound train which was one hour late. I sat on the porch of the Summit House and discussed the functions of a life with Telemachus Hicks, the hotel proprietor. Perceiving that personalities were not out of order, I asked him what species of beast had long ago twisted and mutilated his left ear. Being a hunter, I was concerned in the evils that might befall one in the pursuit of game. That ear, says Hicks, is the relic of a true friendship. An accident? I persisted. No friendship is an accident, said Telemachus, and I was silent. The only perfect case of true friendship I ever knew went on my host, was a cordial intent by the Connecticut man and the monkey. The monkey climbed palms in Berekeia and threw down coconuts to the man. The man sawed them in two and made dippers, which he sold for two reals each and bought rum. The monkey drank the milk of the nuts Through each being satisfied with his own share of the graft, they lived like brothers. But in the case of human beings, friendship is a transitory art, subject to discontinuance without further notice. I had a friend once of the entitlement of basely fish that I imagined was sealed to me for an endless space of time side by side for seven years we had mined ranched sold patent sherns, herded sheep took photographs and other things built wire fences and picked prunes thinks i neither homicide nor flattery nor riches nor sophistry nor drink can make trouble between me and paisley fish we was friends in amounts you can hardly guess at. We was friends in business, and we let our amicable qualities lap over and season our hours of recreation and folly. We certainly had days of Damon and nights of Pythias. One summer, me and Paisley gallops down into these San Andres Mountains for the purpose of a month's and levity, dressed in the natural-store habilitaments of man. We hit this town of Los Pinos, which certainly was a roof-garden spot of the world, and flowing with condensed milk and honey. It had a street or two, and air, and hens, and an eating house, and that was enough for us. We strikes the town after supper time, and we concludes to sample whatever efficacy there is in this eating house down by the railroad tracks. By the time we had set down and pried up our plates with a knife from the red oil cloth, along intrudes widow Jessop with the hot biscuit and the fried liver. Now, that was a woman that would have tempted an anchovy to forget his vows. She was not so small as she was large, and a kind of welcome air seemed to mitigate her vicinity. The pink of her face was the in-hoc signal of a culinary temper and a warm disposition, and her smile would have brought out the dogwood blossoms in December. Widow Jessup talks to us a lot of garrulousness about the climate and history and Tennyson and prunes and the scarcity of mutton and finally wants to know where we came from. Spring Valley, says I. Big Spring Valley chips in paisley out of a lot of potatoes and knucklebone ham in his mouth. That was the first sign I noticed that the old lightest Diogenes business between me and Paisley Fish was ended forever. He knew I how I hated a talkative person, and yet he stampedes into the conversation with his amendments and addendums of syntax. On the map, it was Big Spring Valley, but I had heard Paisley himself call it Spring Valley a thousand times. Without saying more, We went out after supper and sat on the railroad track. We had been partners too long not to know what was going on in each other's mind. I reckon you understand, says Paisley, that I've made up my mind to accrue that widow woman as part and parcel and into my hereditaments forever, both domestic, sociable, legal and otherwise, until death Us do part. Why, yes, says I. I read it between the lines, though you only spoke one. And I suppose you are aware, says I, that I have a movement on foot that leads up to the widow's changing her name to Hicks and leaves you writing to the society column to inquire whether the best man wears japonica or seamless socks at the wedding. There will be some hiatuses in your program, says Paisley, cheering up a piece of railroad tie. I give in to you, says he, in most any respect, if it were secular affairs. But this is not so. The smiles of woman, goes on Paisley, is the whirlpool of squills and calabiates, into which vortex the good ship friendship is often drawn and dismembered. I'd assault a bear that was annoying you, says Paisley, or I'd endorse your note or rub the place between your shoulder blades with opodil doc, the same as ever. But there's my sense of etiquette ceases. In this fracas with Mrs. Jessup, we play it alone. I've notified you fair. And then I collaborates with myself and offers the following resolutions and bylaws. Friendship between man and man, says I, is an ancient historical virtue enacted in the days when man had to protect each other against lizards with 80 foot tails and flying turtles. And they kept up the habit to this day and stand by each other till the bellboy comes up and tells them the animals are not really there. I've often heard I says about the ladies stepping in and breaking up a friendship between men. Why should that be? I'll tell you, Paisley, the first sight and hot biscuit of Mrs. Jessup appears to have inserted a oscillation into each of our bosoms. Let the best man of us have her. I'll play you a square game, and won't do any underhanded work. I'll do all of my courting of her in your presence, so you will have an equal opportunity. With that arrangement, I don't see why our steamboat of friendship should fall overboard in the medicinal whirlpools you speak of. Whichever of us wins out. Good old Hoss says paisley shaking my hand and i'll do the same says he we'll court the ladies synonymously and without any of the prudery and bloodshed usual to such occasions and we'll be friends still win or lose at one side of mrs Jessop's eating house was a bench under some trees where she used to sit in the breeze after the southbound had been fed and gone. And there, me and Paisley used to congregate after supper and make partial payments on our respects to the lady of our choice. And we were so honorable and circuitous in our calls that if one of us got there first, we waited for the other before beginning any gallivantry. The first evening that Mrs. Jeffus knew about our arrangement, I got to the bench before Paisley did. Supper was just over and Mrs. Jessup was out there with a fresh pink dress on and almost cool enough to handle. I sat down by her and made a few specifications about the moral surface of nature as set forth by the landscape and the contiguous perspective. That evening was surely a case in point. The moon was attending to business in the section of the sky where it belonged, and the trees were making shadows on the ground according to science and nature, and there was a conspicuous hullabaloo going on in the bushes between the bullbats and the orioles and the jackrabbits and other featured insects of the forest and the wind out of the mountains was singing like a jew's harp in the pile of old tomato crayons by the railroad track i felt a kind of sensation on my left side something like dough rising in a crack by the fire mrs jessup had moved closer oh mr hicks says she when one is alone in the world don't they feel it more aggravated on a beautiful night like this, I rose up off the bench at once. Excuse me, ma'am, says I, but I'll have to wait till Paisley comes before I can give an audible hearing to a leading question like that. And then I explained to her how we was friends, cinctured by years of embarrassment and travel and complicity, and how we had agreed to take no advantage of each other in any of the more mushy walks of life, such as might be fomented by sentiment and proximity. Mrs. Joseph appears to think serious about the matter for a minute, and then she breaks into a species of laughter that makes the Wildwood resound. In a few minutes, Paisley drops around with oil of bergamot on his hair, and sits on the other side of Mrs. Jessop, and augurates a sad tale of adventure, in which him, and Pipey Lumley had a skinning match of dead cows in ninety-five, for a silver-mounted saddle in the Santa Rita Valley during the nine months' drought. Now, from the start of that courtship. I had Paisley fish hobbled and tied to a post. Each one of us had a different system of reaching out for the easy places in the female heart. Paisley's scheme was to petrify him with wonderful relations of events that he had either come across personally, or in large print. I think he must have got his idea of subjugation in one of Shakespeare's shows I see once called Othello. There is a colored man in it who acquires a duke's daughter by dispersing to her a mixture of the talk turned out by writer Haggard, Lew Dockstadter, and Dr. Perkhurst. But that style of courtin don't work well off the stage. Now, I give you my own recipe for inveigling a woman into that state of affairs when she can be referred to as knee Jones. Learn how to pick up her hand and hold it and she's yours. It ain't so easy. Some grab at it so much like they was going to set a dislocation of the shoulder that you can smell the arnica and hear him tearing off bandages. Some take it up like a hot horseshoe and hold it off at arm's length like a druggist pouring tincture of asafoetida in a bottle. Most of them catch hold of it without giving her a chance to forget that the hand is growing at the end of her arm. Them ways are all wrong. I'll tell you the right way. Did you ever see a man sneak out in the backyard and pick up a rock and throw it at a tomcat that was sitting on a fence looking at him? He pretends he hasn't got a thing in his hand and that the cat don't see him and that he don't see the cat. That's the idea. Never drag her hand out where she'll have to take notice of it. Don't let her know that you think she knows you have the least idea she is aware of you, holding her hand. That was my rule of tactics, and as far as Paisley's serenade about hostilities and misadventure went, he might as well have been reading to her a timetable on the Sunday trains that stop at Ocean Grove, New Jersey. One night, when I beat Paisley to the bench by one pipeful, My friendship gets subsidized for a minute, and I asked Mrs. Jessup if she didn't think a H was easier to write than a J. In a second, her head was mashing the oleander flower on my buttonhole, and I leaned over, and but I didn't. If you don't mind, says I, standing up. We'll wait for Paisley to come before finishing this. I've never done anything dishonorable yet to our friendship, and this won't be quite fair. Mr. Hicks, said Mrs. Jessup, looking at me peculiar in the dark. If it wasn't for but one thing, I'd ask you to hike yourself down the gulch and never disroom your visits to my house. And what is that, ma'am? I asked. You're too good a friend not to make a good husband, says she. In five minutes, Paisley was on his side of Mrs. Jessup. In Silver City, in the summer of 98, he begins, I see Jim Bartholomew chew off a Chinaman's ear in the blue light saloon on account of a cross-barred muslin shirt that what was that noise? I had resumed matters again with Mrs. Jessup right where we had left off. Mrs. Jessup, says I, has promised to make it Hicks, and this is another of the same sort. Paisley winds his feet round a leg of the bench and kind of groans. Lem, says he, we've been friends for seven years. Would you mind not kissing Mrs. Jessup quite so loud? I'd do the same for you. All right, says I. The other kind will do as well. This Chinaman, goes on Paisley, was the one that shot a man called Mullins in the spring of 97. And that was... Paisley interrupted himself again. Lamb, says he, if you was a true friend, you wouldn't hug Mrs. Jessup quite so hard. I felt the bench shake all over just then. You know, you told me you would give me an even chance as long as there was any. Mister Mann says, Mrs. Jessup, turning around to Paisley, if you was to drop in to the celebration of mine and Mister Hicks over wedding, twenty-five years from now. Do you think you could get it into that Hubbard squash you call your head that you are <clears throat> nicks come rouse in this business? I put up with you a long time, but you was Mr. Hicks friend, and it seems to me it's time for you to wear the willow and trot off down the hill. Mrs. Jessup says I, without losing my grasp on the situation as fiance, Mr. Paisley is my friend, and I offered him a square deal and an equal opportunity as long as there was a chance. A chance, says he. Well, he may think he has a chance, but I hope he won't think he's got a cinch after all what he's been next to all the evening. Well, a month afterwards, me and Mrs. Jessup was married in the Lost Pinos Methodist Church, and the whole town closed up to see the performance. When we lined up in front and the preacher was beginning to sing out his rituals and observances, I looks around and Mrs. Paisley. I calls time on the preacher. Paisley ain't here, says I. We got to wait for Paisley a friend once a friend always that's telemachus hicks says i mrs jessop's eyes snap some but the preacher holds up the incantations according to instructions in a few minutes paisley gallops across the aisle putting on a cup as he comes he explains that the only dragwood store in town was closed for the wedding and he couldn't get the kind of boiled shirt that his taste called for until he broke open the back window of the store and helped himself. Then he ranges up on the other side of the bride and the wedding goes on. I always imagined that Paisley calculated as a last chance that the preacher might marry him to the widow by mistake. After the proceedings was over, We had tea and jerked antelope and canned apricots, and then the populace hiked itself away. Last of all, Paisley shook me by the hand and told me I'd acted square and on the level with him, and he was proud to call me a friend. The preacher had a small house on the side of the street that he'd fixed up to rent, and he allowed me and Mrs. Hicks to occupy it till the 10.40 train the next morning when we was going to a bridal tour to El Paso. His wife had decorated it all up with hollyhocks and poison ivy, and it looked real festal and bowery. About 10 o'clock that night, I sets down in the front door and pulls off my beats a while in the cool breeze while Mrs. Hicks was fixin' around in the room. Right soon the light went on inside and I sat there awhile reverbering over old towns and scenes, and then I heard Mrs. Hicks call out, ain't you comin' in soon, Lem? Well, well, says I, kind of rising up. "Durn me if I wasn't waiting for old Paisley to But when I got that far, concluded Telemachus Hicks, I thought somebody had shot this left ear of mine off with a forty-five. But it turned out that it was only a lick from a broom handle in the hands of Mrs. Hicks. End of Telemachus Friend by O. Henry